This is Studio 2 on a Thursday. I am Cherry Gregg. And on a Thursday, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Kraft macaroni and cheese. Mm. Oreos. Yum. Doritos. Uh. Lunchables. Yum, yum. Well, not Lunchables so yeah, much. Uh, yeah. Lunchables stink, but the other three are really, <laughs> they are pretty darn good. I was trying. Yeah. These ultra-processed <laughs> foods are hard to resist. I appreciate the effort, by the way. Mm-hmm. They are very hard to resist. And guess who had a hand in developing and pushing these essentially addictive foods on all of us? Guess who? I'm, I'm not surprised. Big yeah. tobacco. Mm. The Washington Post's Anahad O'Connor is going to give us the story of how cigarette companies like R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris masterfully marketed junk food to all of us. And I got caught up in that Oreo Thin oh, the Oreo oh, addiction. Thin. Yes, Oreo Thin. <laughs> you fell for that? I fell for it. I went double stuff. I said I <laughs> You leaned all the way all, in, man. Oh, goodness. And also coming up on a more serious topic, we're going to talk about the right to medical aid in dying. New Jersey allows terminally ill people who live there to obtain prescriptions to end their lives. But Pennsylvania and Delaware do not. We're going to talk to a Delaware woman, Avi, who wants to expand New Jersey's law to include people who live out of state. And we're going to do it a little different today. We're not going to have like one call in Mm -hmm. segment. If you've got uh, calls or emails on any of the topics today, just send them on in and and we'll, we'll work them into the show. The number is 888-477-9499. The email is studio2 at org. And we have a third topic, by the oh, way, yeah. today. The Opera, Philadelphia, the Opera Philadelphia Festival kicks off tonight. And we've got General Director and President of Opera Philadelphia, David Devan, standing by. He'll be in the studio. Mm-hmm. But first, some news. Yeah. Everybody who knows goes to Melrose. Everybody who knows goes to Melrose. Everybody who knows goes to the Melrose. Everybody who knows went yeah. to Melrose. So the bye Melrose bye. Diner, um, bye bye. it's a legendary institution for many Philadelphians right there, right near uh, Broad and Snyder. Diner's been around for a long, mm-hmm. long time, since 1935. Uh, yesterday, they began demolishing it. Okay, it's not gone, gone, because mm-hmm. the person who owns the property says that they are going to build some apartments there with a smaller version of the Melrose Diner. And on the property, but it's not going to be the old school one yeah, with the old school the retro, diner look, yeah. the retro look. The big, you know, maybe it'll still have booths. I don't know. Um, but this was it was one of the the classics, one of those yeah. classic all night diners in Philadelphia. Uh, as the jingle says, everyone who knows goes mm-hmm. to Melrose, and many people did. I know my dad did when you know he was younger. I we both went yeah. uh, on occasion. Living in South Philly. So um, kind of a sad day for South Philly and South Philly history. There aren't many diners like this left. Yeah, I really like the spot. I mean, I, I frequented when I went out late night. I had, you know, you had a gown on. You mm. went to a black tie, went to the after party. Then you go get Whoa. some pancakes <laughs> at just, Melrose. You I know wish I mean? I'd done that. I missed my <laughs> um, opportunity. Yeah, but, you know, it's definitely a place you'll never forget. I'll never forget. Yeah. I'm, but, again, it's going to a new version is going right. to become and. Things do change. I feel like the problem, though, when we were talking about this, we were like, yeah, we both went there like sometimes. Yeah, but not enough. Right. That's the problem. Like if you're open like 24 hours a day, you can't have a business where people go every once in a while. They just didn't. It seemed like they didn't quite have enough of a regular business. And then Mm -hmm. there was a fire. Which gutted the property. Yeah. So it was sort of one thing after another. It was like the trends were bad, then the circumstances were bad. 
And then eventually, you know, it went the way of the wrecking ball with, like we said, some some measure of resurrection. And and the other thing about Philly is there's choices. So many places you can eat late night, Um, not always late night, but just so many options being a food town. And so, you know, there you go. But we'll see. Hopefully the new smaller version will be we don't know when, but hopefully we'll be able to go there on a late night. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And my tongue is already salivating. Yeah. And um, some positive news for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We're going to lose the, the Melrose in its current state, but we do have some good news. Um, for years, we heard about brain drain in the city, right? Yeah. And how college grads leave this area for better opportunities in other cities. Well, a new report shows that Philadelphia is holding on to its college grads and attracting a lot of college-educated 20- and 30-somethings. This data comes from a new report from Campus Philly, which shows that we are leading in the growth rate of college-educated young people. And all of this trend has been happening since 2000, and we've had a 155% jump in the number of 25- to 34-year-olds in Philly, and that tops other cities in the country. We beat out our hometown area, D.C., Seattle and Denver, those are high growth cities, and that's by more than 15 percentage points, and it doubled the rate of college towns like Boston, Chicago, or New York. So there you go. There you go. Check out the article at BillyPenn.com if you want some more perspective on this. Okay, can I... I, I I, you know what I do. I always yeah, go ahead. Give me the go ahead. Okay. It do, is a growth rate, so it depends where you start. So we're not doing well. Yeah. So so there, but it is good. You can only you got to start mm-hmm. somewhere. <laughs> you gotta you gotta you gotta work up from there. I was disappointed to learn that this category that they count as like sort of recent college grads mm-hmm. is twenty five to thirty four, which means I have now just officially aged line, out. Yeah. I, I don't count anymore. I was I used to count in this. Welcome statistic. to the club. I know. It's, I'm not counting. It's depressing. The- um, but there's one of the one of the issues on the horizon here mm-hmm. is that. You know, these 25 to 34s for a long time, that cohort was millennials. Yeah. That's a pretty large generation. Getting it's a disease now. The Gen, Gen Z, it's a smaller generation. Mm-hmm. And so you got to work a little harder to re- retain. So if you want to maintain that growth rate, you really got to do some things well to continue to attract that group. This article doesn't go as deep into sort of the whys. Yeah. But I would be interested to see that follow up. You know, like, is it is it cost of living? Is it job opportunity? What Was made this yeah, a, yeah. A, a, a pretty successful 20 years for Philly mm-hmm. with this particular cohort? And I will say that there are some pluses for si- the city of Philadelphia. Higher tax revenue, which we really need in the city, um, because, you know, college grads tend to make more money. So mm-hmm. they'll pay more in taxes. It also keeps the city with our eds and meds focus here as ranked 10th when it comes to life sciences and 12th in tech. So there you go. Um, going statewide now. Mm-hmm. Zooming out. Earlier this week, five former Pennsylvania governors signed an open letter asking for the repeal of closed primaries in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So let's do some terminology here. Break it break it closed down. Closed primary is what we have in Pennsylvania. That mm-hmm. means if you want to vote in the Democratic primary, you've got to be registered as a Democrat. If you want to vote in the Republican one, you've got to be registered as a Republican. If you're independent, eh, out of luck. Mm. So um, many, many states allow independents to vote in Mm -hmm. primaries. Uh, And uh, Pennsylvania governors Tom Ridge, Mark Schweiker, Ed Rendell, Tom Corbett, Tom Wolf, all would like Pennsylvania to join their ranks. 
as you can tell, as I read that list, Pretty you know, any of those people, yeah. it's a bipartisan group. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some moves already. There's there's legislation introduced to move toward an open primary system in the state of Pennsylvania. So it does seem like there's a lot of momentum toward this end. Um, your thoughts, Chair? Yeah, my thoughts is, you know, this is hopefully to combat growing extremism, um, make it more fair so that all voters can participate. And in cities like Philadelphia, and we've talked about this multiple times, yes. with closed primaries, I mean, the Democrats basically are handed, you know, yes. you know, um, and, and allowing the Republicans and independents to participate probably would be have a could possibly have a better result for the city. We don't know, but we'll see. I mean, the bipartisanship of this effort is positive, and it seems like. This is one of the few things that folks on both sides of the aisle tend to agree on. I've not seen a persuasive argument against this. However, I have seen people say that it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Like when you try to study it, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you compare maybe like states with different rules, like Mm -hmm. municipalities with different rules that... Because you're right. The idea is that it's a moderating influence on elections. Um, But but, but just from what I've seen, and maybe we'll have an expert come on and tell me I'm reading the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. But just from the studies that I've seen, it doesn't seem to have that big of an impact on who votes in these primaries. There are other ways to do this, by the way. You can have like really, really open primaries where it's like it's not even separated out. It's just who the top two vote getters are. And then they move on to like Mm -hmm. a runoff. They could be two Democrats. They could be two Republicans. So there are other approaches. But it also makes you feel like you can participate. Because for those independents, it's just like... I think from like philosophical perspective, it makes perfect sense. You should be able to participate in every level. So even if it doesn't have the intended outcome, Mm -hmm. philosophically, it's hard for me to find an argument against it. But maybe someone will write in and tell me, I'm wrong. They probably will. They probably will. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and we've seen, you know, lots of states have different rules when it comes to who can vote in primaries. And there's also different rules when it comes to other type of laws as well. So we're going to move on to our newsmaker. And one of those rights that differs by state is the right to medical aid in dying. Ten states around the country give terminally ill people the right to obtain a prescription from a physician to end their life. And in our region, New Jersey is the only state that has a medical aid in dying law. It passed in 2019, but it is limited to those who live in the state. Now there is a lawsuit in New Jersey that is trying to give non-residents access to that law. And it includes plaintiffs from Delaware and Pennsylvania. Judy Gavatos lives in Wilmington and is one of the plaintiffs. She fought off stage for lymphoma twice, but knows that the cancer is likely to return. And in recent years, she has taken up the fight for access to medical aid and dying. And Judy is here to speak with us. Welcome to Studio Two, Judy. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be with you in the sense that I've been listening to WHYY all my life, and it's delightful to hear two new voices focusing on local and other kinds of issues, but with a very interesting younger perspective. So I appreciate being here. Well, that was a good way to start the interview. Thank you, Judy. Um, Okay, so I do have to, this is a serious topic, and Mm -hmm. I want to start here. Um, You've made no secret about the fact that that you've had cancer uh, and your illness has informed your perspective on the issue. Can you explain how? Well, as you said, I've had uh, two rounds 
of uh, cancer and each time got in remission. But I'm a person who doesn't like the whole thing about, you know, this is the war against cancer and every mm. you're a fighter and all that. I prefer to think of me and my body as a garden. And what I do is um, try to weed it when the cancer weeds come up. Mm. And I've done that twice. And I got to tell you, the weeding can be really, really difficult. And I'm 79 now. Mm. The last treatment, I was 75. And I got remission. And I am grateful beyond words for that. But it was so harrowing that I know that at my age, I can't do it again. Um, for periods, I don't know whether you want me to go into what level of detail. Um, well, Judy, I guess the question, right, is is how did it make you think differently or how does it inform your advocacy around um, medical aid in dying, going, okay. through, going through those rounds? Okay. In fact, um, pain and suffering mm. is what yeah. came me, you know, that's what brought me here. And that included, you know, three emergency uh, hospitalizations. Uh, the, the cancer the second time came back hard. Mm. And I went down to do the wash and couldn't breathe because uh, the lymphoma was putting pressure on my lung. I ended up in the hospital on an emergency basis, having to have my left lung drained of a quart of fluid. Wow. And then we began chemo immediately. And the chemo worked, but it was incredibly harsh on, on my, not only my body, but anybody who does this particular yeah. drug, Indexa. And I ended up uh, 103 fevers. Um, I was my blood pressure went up over 160 and one day that all happened together and my body went into what's called the rigors and we all have heard the word yeah. rigor mortis and know that that means no movement when you die but rigors means every part of your body all the all the nerves all the muscles tendons and sinew spasm simultaneously wow. well i was actually off the bed flailing the nurse had to take the side of the bed down lay her body on mine as she's yelling to bring the drugs to knock me out wow. to stop the rigors so judy this was exceptionally painful it sounds like but you survived and but for yeah. people who may not understand or even heard of the term medical aid and dying what is it and what would it allow someone like you who have been through such a harrowing experience what would it allow you to do okay what it would allow me to do and the law is written very specifically uh what i would need to do is i would need to um meet with my primary care doctor, then I would have to wait two weeks, meet with another doctor to confirm a terminal diagnosis. And then and, and an, an assessment uh, that I really am terminal so that this cannot be misused. And then another waiting period when the, uh, the original doctor would then prescribe the medication for me. And then I could take that medication uh, and what I would like to do is do that 
in my home rather than a hospital all link you know hooked up to things uh, i've been through that and it's it's harrowing so i would like to be home and do that and have my loved ones around me mm. and i can say goodbye and i love you and i don't suffer and they don't suffer seeing me suffer mm. because the other part of this on the personal level is uh, my then 31-year-old daughter uh, died 19 years ago in a hospital where we witnessed every bad scene you've seen in an ER movie. And we wanted all that done for her because we wanted her to live. She was only 31. She was going to be married in July. This was June 1st when wow. she died. And we were called back to the hospital and her body crashed. And when they call it crash and crash guards, they mean it. Mm. And as her mother, I witnessed that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you don't want was. people to have to witness you. Exactly. In a situation like that. Exactly. Now, you obviously know this is a hot button issue and there's plenty of yes. pushback. And, and mm -hmm. I think one of the arguments is that we have hospice care. We have palliative care. Um, and why is that not sufficient for everybody? How do you respond? Okay. It is sufficient for many people, but it's also not sufficient for many people. For example, people like me, and I've, I've had numbers of the different medications that hospice um, uses uh, to palliate pain. Unfortunately for myself, and the other people I'm bearing witness for here, it is that those drugs make us sick. And in my case, okay, I'll take an opiate and I'm seemingly, you know, I'm seemingly sleeping and resting peacefully. And then when I awake, I'm hallucinating and have been hallucinating and I'm vomiting. Yeah. The idea of going into a death like that is terrifying. Yeah. And as I said, there's um there's a what i've said in testimony is the the lines from the famous psalms surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life yeah. and i would add when i add to that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life even unto my death and i would want this bill called merciful aid in dying and i think many of the people who think there's something wrong with this if they understood it as merciful aid in dying they yeah. would want it and and i want to push back a little bit more too because some people have used and i know this word is very controversial they've called it a, uh, assisted suicide um which is a, illegal in most places how is medical aid in dying different from assisted suicide Medical aid in dying is not, it's a prescription that you re, you receive from a physician who is qualified. In fact, not just one, but two physicians have to, are qualified to determine that you don't really have much chance. You are going to die. You are going to die. Uh, maybe sooner, maybe later, mm -hmm. but you are terminal. And we have enough science and data to know that pretty much now. I'm not saying there aren't people who could beat the odds. And if a person wants to have all the care and all of that, 
you can do that. But what this law allows is for people like me who the pain can't be palliated for, well, we have this opportunity to get a prescription, a suicidal per- that isn't bringing on death. Death is occurring. God. All this is doing mm-hmm. is taking away the pain. Somebody committing suicide yeah. is deliberately taking their lives, not, not what we're what we're trying to do, which is we're dying, yeah, and we want to do it without pain. And just not, the, thank you so much, Joe. I just want to on that note just make sure people know that if you are in crisis, there is a national mm-hmm. hotline. Uh, the number is nine eight eight. We have only a few minutes left, Judy, and I wanted to. Sure. Uh, have you talk about the multiple approaches advocates like yourself are taking. You're pushing for laws in places like Delaware and Pennsylvania. You are also uh, part of this lawsuit in New Jersey, where the law right now says you have to be a New Jersey resident to access medical aid in dying, which is legal in the Garden State. Um, If the New Jersey lawsuit is successful, and we know New Jersey's geography, very close to Philadelphia and New York Mm -hmm. City, big population centers, how does that potentially change the game on this issue? Oh, boy. Well, uh, again, you just uh, I mean, you just laid out the demographics. So um, this would uh, give mercy to people at the end of their lives, to many, many people in, the, in this g- geographic area. And for me personally, um, living in Wilmington, I'm 20 minutes from the Delaware Memorial Bridge. Mm. And it would allow me uh, to go over, um, consult with two different doctors, uh, do the waiting periods, all of that, and then I could get the medication and die. I would I would need to, to like rent a room or something uh, and, and die peacefully there. Um, I would prefer that Delaware passed the law and then I could die peacefully in my own home. But if my choice is I'm dying in my own own home, hallucinating and vomiting, I want to go to New Jersey to spare the people I love, the experience that I saw witnessing. And I know many people have seen witnessing a bad death. Wow. Um, I wish we had more time, but we don't, Judy. That is Judy Gavatos, uh, who is part of a lawsuit trying to open up New Jersey's medical aid in dying law to non-residents, also part of a push in Delaware so that that state has its own law along the same lines. Um, Judy, we really do appreciate the time on Studio Two. Well, as I said, I appreciate your giving me the time to do the witnessing. We, if we tell our stories, we can save each other's lives. Yes, we can. Thank you so much, Judy. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking about big food, Avi, and uh, Big Tobacco's connection to it. If you have questions or comments, email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Cherry, 
Mm. Maybe you have this, the same memory. Mm. I have a vague recollection from my childhood of people saying that you should avoid certain foods because they were owned by big tobacco. And the idea at the time, this is like the 90s, mm-hmm. wasn't that the foods themselves were bad or evil, but that by buying them, you know, you were feeding the coffers of Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds. It was like a, a boycott type of vibe. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward, mm-hmm. it all turns out maybe there was something nefarious in the foods made by Nabisco Craft. And Hmm. the like, Hmm, right? A new study in the journal Addiction argues that tobacco companies took the tricks they learned from years of cigarette manufacturing and peddling and integrated them into their food products. Basically, they hooked us on snacks the same way they hooked us on tobacco. Here to tell us more is Anahad O'Connor, health columnist at the Washington Post. Anahad, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. I got to try to understand how you even study this and get to this conclusion, Anahad. So how do you determine whether or not the, this large class of foods that were made by companies owned by Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds were actually substantially scientifically different than foods made by competitors? Walk us through how this study even attempted to get at that sort of big and complex question. Right. So, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and ate a lot of the foods that were included in this study. And I had no idea that they were owned by tobacco companies until now. Uh, It turns out, I think a lot of people don't realize that 80s, 90s and early 2000s, RJR, RJ Reynolds and Philip Morris were essentially the world's uh, leading producers of processed foods because they owned brands like Kraft and Velveeta, Nabisco, uh, Ritz crackers, mm. uh, you know, even sugary beverages like Hawaiian Punch and Capri Sun, Oscar Mayer, which made hot dogs and Lunchables. They, they were owned- everywhere. The octopus yes, was everywhere. I ate a lot of <laughs> Every- Oscar Mayer wieners, man. As I was do- doing the story, I kept uh, reading about the brands and the foods they made. And I was just thinking, wow, these are all the foods that I loved yep. growing up. As <laughs> Partly because they were so heavily marketed to me as as a child. Even Fruity Pebbles and breakfast mm. cereal were owned by the tobacco brands. Um, and so the, I can go into the history of why uh, the tobacco companies went into the food business. But I'll, I'll start by talking about the study, which yeah. is um, researchers at the University of Kansas were able to take the best-selling um, products that were owned by tobacco companies, the best-selling food products owned by tobacco companies in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and compared them to their competitor products that were not owned by the tobacco giants, uh, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris. And they looked at uh, how much uh, the combinations of fat and sodium, fat and carbs, and uh, sugar and fat they contained. And they know that when foods contain above a certain threshold of these combinations of additives, they become what's called hyperpalatable. We're much more likely to crave these foods and to overeat them, to eat them compulsively. And they essentially compared the nutrition facts of the tobacco-owned foods to the non-tobacco-owned foods. And they found that the tobacco-owned foods, things like Lunchables and Kraft Mac and Cheese, um, during that period, were far more likely to be hyperpalatable than their competitor and products. So, and so let's dig into this this term hyperpalatable because in your reporting you say hyperpalatable foods have a lot in common with addictive substances 
Explain what those foods are and why experts believe they're likely to get people hooked and crave them. Right, exactly. So, you know, there are a number of terms here. So there's ultra processed, which are just foods that are highly processed, contain a lot of additives. They're things not found in nature. So like potato chips and, uh, you know, cheeseburgers. And then there are, there are foods that are hyper palatable. These are the foods that we know from studies people you know report that they have a lot of problem or a lot of trouble um, controlling their intake of these foods because they eat them compulsively they crave them when they start eating them they can't stop so these are things like you know pizza and uh, cheeseburgers and french fries and cake and cookies and ice cream um, and it turns out that these foods have a lot in common with addictive sub substances so they contain ingredients from naturally occurring plants and foods that have been purified um, so, you know, if you think about alcohol, for example, you know, this is ethanol is the main uh, addictive ingredient in there. You think about drugs of abuse like, you know, cocaine and heroin. Uh, these foods, they are essentially or these drugs are essentially um, purifications from plants mm. uh, of substances. And with food, these hyper palatable foods, you have things like sugar, which is extracted and purified from plants. You have these fats, which are extracted and purified um, from from natural foods and these additives and, and substances, and they're concentrated and transformed into products that are quickly absorbed into our bloodstreams, and mm. they amplify and light up the reward centers in our brains, and we want more and more of them. And every addictive substance is something that we take from nature, and we alter it, process it, and refine it in a way that makes it more rewarding. And that's clearly what's happened with these hyperpalatable foods. I want to take an example from your piece mm -hmm. of how a brand was transformed mm -hmm. and remarketed and reassembled in a way um, that leads us to this place of hyper palatability. Let's talk about Hawaiian punch. That's People might one. remember Hawaiian punch. Maybe mm -hmm. you still drink Hawaiian punch. It's a super sugary mm -hmm. uh, beverage, mostly marketed to children. Mm -hmm. What's the backstory of Hawaiian punch, Anahad? The backstory behind Hawaiian Punch is fascinating. And again, this is a product that I loved growing up. We used to get the big cans of Hawaiian mm -hmm. Punch and punch them open with the can opener. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it was good. It was delicious. And it had Punchy the mascot, you know, the, the big, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, jug of Hawaiian juice, uh, Hawaiian Punch. Um, but the backstory is that Hawaiian Punch did not start out as a kid's drink. It started out in the 19... Uh, 50s and 60s as a cocktail mixer for adults wow. and it was available in only two flavors so adults would buy it and use it you know, to mix their cocktails and then um, this tobacco executive at rj reynolds had an epiphany where he wrote a memo to one of his um to one of his top executives saying you know we're thought of as a tobacco company but really we are not just merely in the tobacco business we're in the flavor business we have all these flavors and additives and colors and things that we put in our cigarettes like menthol for example and these other additives that we can use to put in processed foods and and processed drinks and we can get really large returns uh, financial returns on these products and those were his words so they purchased the maker of hawaiian punch and they started doing testing they started um, adding their flavors and colors and and other additives to Hawaiian Punch, and they did uh, market testing on children and on housewives, where they would bring them in, study them, give them these different drinks, see what they liked, and they found the flavors and colors that children liked, um, mm. and they 
turned Hawaiian punch into a kid's drink with at least 16 flavors at first, including things like the Great Blue Dini and these Ooh. other products that were specifically tailored to children. And they said, okay, these are what the kids like. These are what the adults like. Let's get rid of the adult stuff and just focus on the kids. They developed a juice box. They started advertising to kids. They um, started using Punchy, the mascot. <laughs> and uh, and this became a bestseller among kids. They mm-hmm. started using tobacco marketing tactics to hook children, um, just like they were hooking, trying to hook children with their um, uh, cigarettes. And so I want to switch now to the marketing. I think that's a perfect segue here because for people may not remember like what the tobacco companies did to sell their products um, to, to young people. Can you sort of make the analogy? What was very similar? This is the way they did it for tobacco. And this is the way they did it for big food. Like give us the, the, line, the types of comparisons so we can see the, um, the, the connection there on the marketing techniques. Yeah. So in some cases, you know, you could buy these brands of cigarettes and they had like these special cigarette stores where you could get points and earn credits and get, you know, sort of cool, um, you know, sort of gear or, um, you know, things like cigarette jackets and, you know, all sorts of things with the logos on it. The cool brand, for example, Joe Camel. And they did something very similar where they created a, you know, uh, the sugary drink stores for children where they could get credits and points to buy, you know, this sort of swag, as we would call it nowadays. Um, And they started heavily advertising in, you know, TV commercials using Punchy, for example, um, Sunday comic books, uh, toys and magazines, um, school book covers. um, And they were really focused on hooking kids, just like um, you know, the tobacco companies did with Joe Camel, for example, this was seen as a cool character that kids could relate to. And they wanted to be like this kid. Um, there was even a study showing that, um, kids were better able to identify Joe Camel as a cartoon character than, than other cartoon characters that you would expect them to know. And the tobacco company said, no, we're not targeting children, but for some reason it turned out, um, their marketing, um, you know, was something that really stuck with kids and they use the same tactics for their sugary drinks, things like not just Hawaiian punch, but also um, Capri sun was another uh, sugary drink that they um, really heavily advertised to children. And one thing they did was they used this, this uh, tactic called line extensions. So, you know, if you are selling cigarettes and you basically have, you know, this cigarette with tobacco and maybe some flavors, and there's not a whole lot you can do with just the tobacco. So what you do is you, you know, develop a brand that is for men, for example, like they developed the Marlboro man, you know, Marlboro cigarettes were for, for men who wanted to be cowboys, for example. And then there were Virginia Slims that were, you know, a cigarette that was marketed toward women. And then there were, um, you know, the menthol cigarettes that were heavily advertised to African-Americans. And they used this, this concept of line extensions with um, junk foods as well. Mm. You know, they would take, Hawaiian punch and develop all these different yeah. flavors to target different children. They, you know, created, um, uh, you know, they had their honey gram snackers and they created Teddy grams, which were like the mini bear size snackers for children. And yeah. then, special, you and know, I remember the Kool-Aid man putting around <laughs> saying, Oh the yeah. Man. Yeah. So they had different flavors and different foods um, targeted to different populations of, of, of the population. And they even did this with like uh, marketing yeah. specific toward Hispanic uh, adults and children, for example, as well. And this is all in their internal mm-hmm. memos describing these marketing strategies because, to hook. Because we just have a couple minutes left on it, I just want to jump in. Um, mm-hmm. an email from Shirley about Hawaiian punch. I loved it as a kid. When I got older, I read the ingredients list and saw the term ester of wood Ooh. rosin 
didn't sound like something that should be ingested. But while we're talking about Hawaiian punch and line extensions and marketing, I have to do the devil's advocate thing, which is what's a food company supposed to do? They're supposed to market their food well, give it to you at at a good price point and make it taste good. Is there mm-hmm. something inherently wrong with doing that as a food company? Right. So we know, and this is something that experts will tell you, that food companies you know, are business. They're not trying to do a public service at the end of the day, especially uh, corporations. They are trying to increase uh, value for their, their shareholders and increase their, their bottom line. But at the same time, you know, we see that they are, have been adding over the decades more and more sugar, more and more mm-hmm. artificial flavors and colorings and fat. And, you know, doing these things that are really increasing the hyper palatability of their products. And, you know, what is the end result of that? It's it's hard to find a nutrition expert or public health expert who won't tell you that um, what's happened to our food supply has been driving uh, the epidemic that we have now mm-hmm. of obesity, yeah. chronic diseases and heart disease. The leading killers of Americans and people around the globe now are diet related diseases, you know, heart disease, diabetes. Um, several cancers, um, obesity, um, hypertension, you know, these are things that diseases that are taking years off of our life. The life expectancy in America is now falling for the first time in decades, in part because of the diet related diseases. So this what's happening to our food supply is slowly uh, killing us and also driving up our healthcare costs as well. And we only have a a about two and a half minutes. But I got to ask you, I mean, you your reporting shows that folks knew and they thought that maybe, you know, these foods could be addictive. Now you have non, you know, tobacco companies sort of marketing and doing the same thing. Do you think that at some point there could be some big time, big food lawsuits in the same way that there there were big tobacco lawsuits, if you were to look in a crystal ball? Mm-hmm. I know a lot of public interest groups have been looking into this. Um, and the fact of the matter is that it's, thought that one reason why, you know, so in the early 2000s, the tobacco companies really exited the food industry and and spun off these companies. And it's thought that one reason they did that is because we know that there were some executives at Kraft and other other companies who internally were saying, you know, these foods are a problem. And and at that time, Philip Morris and RJ Reynolds and the other tobacco giants were just completely mired in um, lawsuits over their tobacco products. And they were starting to warn their food company executives that, hey, you know, you guys could be facing lawsuits Mm. as well for foods. And that that may be one reason why they said it's time for us to exit uh, this industry. And the fascinating thing is that um, when these researchers compared the brands that had been known by tobacco companies to their competitor brands nowadays, they found that there was only a slight difference in how hyper palatable they were. Everyone else caught up. Everyone else caught up. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what had happened in, t- in the tobacco industry when one tobacco company would, you know, add a new flavor or um, a filter or additive to their cigarettes that increased their sales. Then other tobacco companies would try to study that and do the same thing. And experts will tell you that that just is what helped to snowball and increase the addictiveness of, of cigarettes because companies kept trying to catch up and one up uh, each other. And it seems like we've seen the same thing now in the food industry where companies are saying, OK, well, this food is something that people are going crazy over. And, you know, look at this company's sales. We need to you know, add more sugar or add more fat or, you know, do what this food company is doing to try to increase our sales. And, you know, what's the end result of that? You know, we have this, you know, epidemic yeah. of yep. diseases. 
Uh, Fascinating discussion. Look at those labels, yeah. folks. Uh, Anahad mm-hmm. O'Connor is a health columnist at the Washington Post. His latest piece is titled Many of Today's Foods Were Bought to You by Big Tobacco. Thanks so much for joining us on Studio Two. Thank you for having me. And coming up, Opera Philadelphia's festival kicks off today. We'll be talking about that and get a little bit of a preview coming up. Stick with us. Lots to come. Welcome back, everybody. This is Studio Two. I won't sing it because I'm not qualified, but my name is Avi Wolfman (laughs) Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. I will spare you from song as well. (laughs) Oh, 23. That is the name. You don't trust me as a baritone? It's a tenor? Um, no. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I thought you might bust well, out a falsetto. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'll put anything past you, Ob. Um, <laughs> o23. That is the name of the fifth annual Opera Philadelphia Festival kicking off today. The festival started in 2017 to respond to fewer people subscribing to the opera and to serve a wide variety of opera to a wider audience. Think the Netflix of opera with an abundance of options. And the man behind Opera Philadelphia is David Devan, and he's with us after serving as the director for the past 12 years. He announced this year that he'll be leaving the institution next May. So this is his last opera festival. He joins us today on Studio Two to talk about Festival O23 and the future of opera. Yes. David, welcome to Studio Two. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much. And so as we jump in, um, we heard a little bit about the reason why this festival um, was started. I've never heard of an opera festival. Mm. Tell us a little bit more why you started it and then how it has shifted over the past few years. Sure. There there are actually quite a few opera festivals in the world, but they're almost largely summer festivals. Mm. So they basically cater to folks that have lots of resources that can travel around um, and in beautiful places and see opera. They're like in Italy. Yeah. 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 Or Aix-en-Provence uh, is uh-huh. great. Um, you know, yeah. Santa Fe. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you see all the private planes coming yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but there aren't any um, festivals that are opera festivals that are really entwined with contemporary urban life. Mm. Mm. And we wanted to have a way of um, being in step with contemporary urban life um, by creating a a whole host of um, options for people to explore virtuosic voice and theater. And um, we also know, you guys, everybody that's listening probably, we're all now in charge of our own media consumption, whether it's music, TV, Mm -hmm. radio. And so this idea that, you know, there's a guy like me who curates the season and you must buy it and I know what's good for you Mm -hmm. and we will program it is kind of yesterday's news. So the idea of the festival is is it's an artist-centered practice where we are working with artists that are doing the most urgent and um, and important work. And um, we put it together. We stitch it together in this festival. And people can decide what they want to come to they and what they, they choose. They don't want the prefix menu anymore. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. They no. want to pick and choose. Yeah. But So I want to understand the economics because I think Ugh, it economics and opera. <laughs> yeah. Do we have to? Okay, let's framed, go. <laughs> frame the idea of this festival because, in part, because I think you're facing the same problem that hey, we're facing in some ways. You're looking for that next generation to, of to listeners, participants, yeah. of audience. So, typically in the past, subscriptions were were like what 
part of your business. I'm putting that in air quotes. And, and where and where is that trending and how are you replacing that? Yeah, so the entire industry is facing uh, facing this. So, you know, some organizations had their subscriptions as much as 80% wow. of mm-hmm. their audience. We were about a healthy like 70% back in the day. We're now 25%. Wow. wow. Um, and But there's hope and there's opportunity because if you think about the subscription model, it's about um, a small group of people buying a ton of tickets. And over time, that small group of people dictate the tastes mm-hmm. and what gets programmed. So we're now coming to the end of baby boomerism. Um, uh-huh. And so we got these other generations, X, Y, Z, um, queued up. Um, and so I think there's real opportunity to be radical about new audience development. Um, and if we're serious about democratizing our work mm-hmm. and making it more available for more people. So there's a, a world where we might sell less tickets and serve more people because, you know, yeah. My Gen X friends, um, you know, are not going to go to an opera and then convert to be a subscription next, subscriber next year. They may come once again, twice again, um, maybe 10 times again over a period of time, but it depends on the work and yeah. the projects. And we're seeing that with the repertoire that we're planning for this festival. And so, let, yes, let's talk about the festival. <laughs> um, lots of lots of performances over a short period of time yeah. give us a little bit of highlights and we want to play a yeah. clip or two yeah yeah sure i'm going to start with um a rural premiere um so um we've done 18 new operas um mm. in my during my tenure at opera philadelphia um and uh this 10 days in a madhouse is kind of amazing um and uh it's a written by a, a composer, Renee Orth, um, and it has an all-woman team developing it mm. um, about Nellie Bly, the journalist that, yeah. um, you know, kind of almost invented the <laughs> investigative great journalism. great investigative wow. journalist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and so that opens the festival tonight. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed. And we're going to play a little bit a clip of, of that. Yeah. yeah. I believe that is soprano Kiera Duffy yes. as Nellie Bly, yeah. and it's you hear the voice, and mm-hmm. you're not seeing the visual. You're certainly not picturing Nellie Bly. You're at least for me, I'm picturing, you know, the traditional opera tropes. Right. Um, so, what is it going to be like for people to hear that voice matched up with a story, a more contemporary story like Nellie Bly's? Right, and we the sound file we sent you was um, with piano, and it's mm. fully orchestrated, and it also has electronic music in it wow. um, and sound engineering. Uh, the orchestra is actually sitting on the top of the set instead of traditionally in the orchestra Not in the, pit. In the pit. Yeah, okay, wow. it's in the Wilma Theater, only three hundred seats, so it's a completely intimate experience. Wow, um, and it's as much a piece of um, uh, progressive theater as it is um, opera. And you don't need the little binoculars no, uh, no, to no. see it. Three hundred no. seats, yeah. you'll be right yeah, there. Yeah, you're right there. And I want to play a quick clip from another one: "Unholy Wars," which reframes the Crusades from a Middle Eastern perspective. E per fiamme porporine, feria laure matutine, laure matutine. Wow. 
what so in, here and there? Yeah. So in our crazy on? opera blender, we call O23. Um, they, it's Baroque, that's Baroque music. This is taking um, music from the Baroque period that often set um, about wars in the Middle East. But of course, anybody in the Middle East was not part of the conversation. And so, um, what these artists do is perform this in a multimedia presentation um, where they uh, it, the stories are interpreted through their lens. Wow. And there are four other operas that are going to be uh, performed over yeah. the course of the festival. Simone um, Bocanegra, yes. big Italian Verdi, mm-hmm. you know, full on so grand you got the opera. Classics yeah, and the yeah, avant garde yeah, kind yeah. of side and, by side. And yeah. pushing things forward yeah. for an expanded audience. So, and I got to mention before we. We only have about a minute plus to talk about this. But you're leaving. I am. Yeah. At I'm staying the in end Philly. of May staying, 2024. Staying in oh. Philly. Um, you led <laughs> Opera Philadelphia during a very transitional period. Why now? Why are you leaving? Because of what we were talking about. You know, I believe um, I turned 60 um, in Congratulations, January. by the way. Yes. Happy birthday. Um, and I believe um, we've established something really important and artistically vital. And I need to give it up to the next generation to continue inventing it. And if we don't do that, if we don't let those younger folk actually run our organizations and be on our boards and be, you know, the big, the president. In leadership. um, In leadership, it's not going to change. It's not going to be for and of them. And everything that the the boomer generation built was by and for them because who else were they going to build it for? So I think that's why I want to sort of open it up. And I'm going to stay in Philadelphia. I'm going to start my own independent um, advising and We're curating. glad you're sticking I'm around. I'm glad you're sticking around. <laughs> that and is you'll David still Devan. be doing all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, General Director and President of Opera Philadelphia. And remember, Philadelphia Opera Philadelphia's Festival O23 opens today and runs through October 1st. David, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. It was a busy week. Busy week. Busy day. Busy day. Yesterday we were talking about um, Sherrington and posting pictures online. So today's outro music is a tribute to that. If you missed that show from yesterday, with what voice I have left, I will tell you to download our podcast. And be sure to rate and review. And this wraps up our show. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today's show. Joan Isabella is our WHYY Audio General Manager. You can go to whyy.org slash Studio 2 to get our podcast or wherever you get your pods. And from Studio 2 in Philly, I'm Cherry Gray. I'm Avi Wolfman-Eric. So long. <laughs>